0: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network, a consortium of podcasts which showcases new scholarship for a worldwide audience. I'm your host, James West, and I'm joined today by Carol McGabe Booker, who will be talking about her role in editing the reissued autobiography of pioneering black reporter Alice Dunigan, the first African American female journalist accrued. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network, a consortium of podcasts which showcases new scholarship for a worldwide audience. I'm your host, James West, and I'm joined today by Carol McGay-Booker, who will be talking about her role in editing the reissued autobiography of pioneering black reporter Alice Dunnigan, the first African American female journalist accredited to the White House, the Supreme Court and the U.S. Senate. In the 60s and 70s, Carol covered civil rights for The Voice of America, Freelanced articles for The Washington Post, Reader's Digest, Ebony, Jet, and Black Stars, and reported from Africa, including the Nigerian warfront, for Westinghouse broadcasting stations. She would later switch careers to become an attorney after studying law at Georgetown University, and served as counsel to public and international broadcasting, as well as organizations such as Greenpeace. Following her retirement in 2008, she helped her husband, journalist Simeon Booker, to write Shocking the Conscious, a reporter's account of the civil rights movement, which would go on to be published by the University Press of Mississippi. After Simeon and Alice Dunigan were inducted into the Black Journalist Hall of Fame in 2013, Carol tracked down Dunigan's long out-of-print biography. What she found was a treasure trove of history as well as a fascinating account of an amazing woman's life and she determined to find a publisher for an updated, annotated edition of Godnigan's story. Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist Hank Klibanoff has described the book as, quote, wisely edited and lovingly reshaped, a living, sometimes surprising, and often uplifting history of the race, gender, and poverty obstacles that rose and then fell in Jim Crow America during the 20th century. And I, uh, Carol joins the programme now. So I'm um... I'd like to introduce Carol Booker to the show today. How are you doing, Carol?
1: I'm fine, James. It's such a pleasure to talk
0: with you. That's great. Thanks. Um, How's the weather over there?
1: Hot. Very hot. Very hot. (laughs) summer.
0: Yeah, hot in the UK too. Um, So we're going to be talking today um, about your kind of re-release, your editing of Alice Dunigan's autobiography. So before we get started on that, um, if you would like to introduce yourself, To our listeners, uh, maybe give a little bit of a brief bio of yourself, um, your background, and then how you came across Alice uh, Donegan.
1: Well, I started my career as a journalist. I came down from New York City to Washington, D.C. after college and worked as a writer editor for The Voice of America. And it was as a journalist covering the civil rights movement that I met not only my husband, who was Washington bureau chief for Ebony and Jet magazines. But I also was introduced to Alice Dunigan. although that was a very brief encounter. In the case of my husband, we got married. And then I became a lawyer a few years later. After about seven years as a journalist, I decided to go to law school at Georgetown, And then after law law school, decided I didn't really know much about the law without practicing. So I gave up journalism and became a lawyer in the fields of civil rights, the environment, and then finally uh, U.S. International Broadcasting again. And it was at an event at which my husband was inducted into the Black Journalist Hall of Fame that I was reminded that Alice Dunnigan had written a book about her experiences uh, coming out of Kentucky and breaking through so many barriers, not, not only as a person of color, but as a woman. When the MC was introducing my husband in in his induction into the Hall of Fame. He mentioned that his book, which had just been published, was so easily available. And then they inducted posthumously Alice Dunnegan, who had died in 1983. And I remembered at that moment that I had met her and I was familiar with her book, but I'd never read it. So I decided I would go and look for it. And it was very, very hard to find. It was only available in the end at research libraries, such as our main library here in Washington, and Spingarn, spin Spingarn Research Center at Howard University, the Library of Congress. Well, we live just a few blocks from the Library of Congress, so I decided to read it there. And... I was absolutely fascinated it was 673 pages and so it took several visits to really read it at the pace that I wanted to read it to really absorb it and as I was doing that I said people today particularly young women but anybody who's interested in American history political history civil rights, should really have access to this book. And unfortunately, it, it was not available. I found a couple of copies on the uh, on the web, and they were being sold for over $100. So it was not only a question of the length of the book, which would perhaps dissuade people from picking it up, but also the price. So I contacted Alice dunigan's son. She had one son, Robert, who lived here in the Washington metropolitan area. He he just died last spring. And I asked him if he would mind if I edited his mother's book for today's audience, which would involve not only cutting it down, but also adding footnotes that would explain people, places, and events that today's reader might not be familiar with. And he was very enthusiastic about that and gave me the go-ahead to find a publisher. Well, I inquired of three university academic publishers, and all three of them answered immediately that they wanted the book. I chose the University of Georgia Press because Lisa Baer, their director, recognized that this was a book not only about civil rights, but a book that would inspire young women. And so from there, I edited the book, and it was published just last year. And everyone, I'm happy to say, and I can say this with all modesty, since I did not write it, Alice Dunnegan wrote it, it is an autobiography, I can say it is a fascinating book, and everyone who has read it has agreed, there's so much in it. History, I mean, history of an era we don't look at very much. History of a locale we don't read about very much. And the history of events before what we know as the Civil Rights Movement, which we think of as starting perhaps in the mid-1950s, galvanized by the Emmett Till murder in Mississippi, and then on through the Montgomery bus boycott and then into the 60s. But there was a lot going on in civil rights in America in the 1940s and early 50s, and Alice Dunn again brings that out in the second part of her book. The book is really in two parts. The first part, dealing with her growing up, in rural Kentucky, and there's a lot in that part that, as Alice says, it reads more like a novel, but she says that's the way it was. It was a scene of poverty and discrimination, but it was much different from the Deep South. Kentucky was one of four border states, we call them, Those are the states that had slavery back in the time of the Civil War, but did not secede from the Union, Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky. And perhaps that contributed to the fact that life in Kentucky from when Alice was born, 1906, until she left in 1942, it was different from Mississippi. I'll give you one example that I found fascinating. She talks in the book about a morning in 19, I say nineteen, 1920, when her mother and grandmother were so excited, they were going to get to vote in a presidential election. The first time that women could vote in a presidential election across this country because of the passage of the uh, women's suffrage amendment to the constitution so her mother goes off early in the morning her grandmother was ill and Alice took care of her that morning and her mother goes off to, walking the 4 miles to Russellville their their local town to cast her ballot, all excited to get there before the lines formed. And I read that Alice focuses on her grandmother's illness. Her grandmother actually died that morning. And she, she doesn't focus on what I thought was fascinating in that here is her mother, a black woman, voting in 1920 and how many years later, in the 1960s, there would be black women, men, and children dying to assert that right on the Selma um, Bridge, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in, in Selma, Alabama, in Birmingham. I mean, this was a, a big deal. And But it, it's interesting that from Alice's perspective in Kentucky because things were different, her father was even active in politics, that uh, getting to vote was more a big deal because it was the first time women could
0: vote. So you mentioned there um, her her parents and uh, also her grandmother. As Alice talks about in in her book, um, the relationship particularly with her father and then her grandmother was, was quite complex, often difficult. Um, so if you could uh, just say a little bit more about that, um, her relationship with her parents and then also with with her grandmother before her grandmother passed away.
1: Well, her father, Willie Allison, was a sharecropper. And he was descended from, can't say intermarriage or mixed marriage, because back in those days, you black and white couldn't marry. But he had uh, ancestors who were both black and white. Uh, Lena Pittman, Alice's mother, was uh, descended from slaves, and her grandmother had something that Alice noted persists persisted even to Alice's day, and that was a, a color discrimination where you you were more highly regarded if your skin was lighter. So her grandmother would uh, use racial slurs to describe Willie Allison's family. And uh, she never did like the idea that Lena did not marry a dark-skinned man. So that, that her grandmother had some other quirks that made her kind of... Uh, uh, and she also picked on little Alice because Alice was, was kind of light skinned and uh, she would call her that yellow skin gal and and say it right in front of this little girl. But that morning when her grandmother died uh, in her arms, Alice says she just she forgave her grandmother for all of that. And her mother, Lena Pittman, took in laundry, and her father didn't see why she needed to go to school, but, oh, she loved to go to school. That little girl walked those four miles into Russellville in snow, in rain, and heat, and in part, when she was very little, it was out of loneliness. There were no other little girls to play with on this red clay hill four miles outside of town. So to have any kind of uh, social interaction with other children, she had to go to school. But it was not long before Alice realized that the only way to a better life than her parents had was through education. One of the few careers open to black men and women at that time was to teach in the black schools. If she hadn't been able to get a teaching certificate, Alice would have had to be a domestic worker, a nanny, a cook, a house cleaner. She she didn't want that. She felt she could do more. She knew she could do more. And so she gobbled up education, actually being either the first in the class or close to it all the way through and having fantastic attendance. So one summer when she was applying for any kind of work uh, at a, a college so that she could get a teaching certificate after she graduated from the two-year high school that they had for blacks in Russellville, she couldn't, she couldn't get any work. or and There were no grants for college at that time. And her parents told her they couldn't afford to send her to school. And her father didn't really see why. She would even be interested, he said, nobody else in the family uh, went to college, why do you want to? But in the fall, very downcast, she went to her uh, Sunday school. She was the secretary for the local Sunday school. And the town's, I think he was the town's black dentist. He came along and he happened to be the uh, preacher at the church. And he said, well, Alice, where are you going to college? Several of her friends were going. And she was almost in tears. She told him her parents couldn't afford to send her to college. And he sort of erupted and said, you tell your parents to talk to me. Because he knew she had been valedictorian in high school. So a week went by. She didn't hear anything. She went to a sand lot baseball game, try to forget her miseries, and all of a sudden her mother and father pull up in a buggy and they tell her, to get in, you're going. We have to get you ready to go to school tomorrow. And she's she's what? And they told her that the um Reverend had spoken to them and told them it would be a crime not to send Alice to college, and that if necessary, he would pay for it, but he would lend the money to Alice and she would have to pay him back. And he was so confident that she would do that that he had no hesitation to offer the money. So they got her ready, got some clothes together, put them in a patched up trunk, and the next morning. She went off to college in Frankfurt with, um, I think, two or three classmates. And then, then once there, other girls who were supposed to wait tables in the dining room and that kind of thing didn't show up, and they turned to Alice and said, would you like a job waiting tables? So she worked her way through.
0: You kind of split or alice's kind of career can be split into to three sections, so you have the kind of teaching and then you have her career as a journalist and then later she uh, goes into politics so in terms of this this first period um her teaching career um she in chapter six um of the book Alice describes her first those kind of first difficult years uh during the during the twenties and then subsequently into the depression as some of the most difficult and disappointing um, in her life. How important or how formative do you think those years were um her teaching career to set her up for her later successes as a journalist and then in politics?
1: Very important. And I right away in those, those chapters, we see what Alice Dunnegan is made of. Here's, here's an example she goes off to the reverend bixby the same sponsor drives her to her first job in a tiny hamlet about 30 miles away from home so she's going to have to live there because there was no way to commute 30 miles in those days it would take too long even in a model t ford which is what the reverend drove so he helps her find um lodging with two elderly ladies. And then he takes her, it's a little, it's a, I mean, it is small. There are about seven houses and a church. And then other people who would come to the school would be far out in the rural areas and have to get there somehow or try to live with somebody closer like she did. So he takes her down the hill from the uh, lady's uh, house to the schoolhouse. And the first thing she sees is very, this is the first job. She's 18 years old. She's very disappointed. It's a run. It's typical though. It's a run down one room schoolhouse. And it's pretty dilapidated. They go inside and this is unfinished floor, all dusty. So when you walk, you kick up dust. There are no, Desks. There are old church pews in there that were given to them. So the children sit on church pews. There's a leaky roof. There's a potbelly stove, the chimney of which is um, hanging by wire from the ceiling. And where there should be windows, one on each side of the room, there there's what would have been windows but now they're covered with cardboard so it's it's pretty bad outside there's a place in the yard where coal would be dumped and the teacher getting there at seven o'clock in the morning before the students would have to get the coal bring it in and fire up the stove so the place would be warm enough for the students so There were eight grades in this one room, and the enrollment was something like 60, and usually about 40 kids showed up, which was pretty good for a rural area where children often had to be kept out of school to help uh, work on the farm. So she's, she's thoroughly disgusted by the condition of the school. But she doesn't say anything. She's so proud that she's gotten the job finally because she, she found it very hard to get a position without having experience, which led to the question, well, how do you get experience if you can't get hired? But somebody died, actually, just before school opened and they had an opening and she was the most qualified. So she got this on the spur of the moment. So she she sets about uh, organizing the students she had three who were eligible to take this countywide test that would give you a certificate of graduation. Nobody in the school she found out had ever passed it before, and she didn't know was it because they were intimidated were they did they drop out before they reached the eighth grade, or were were they just not prepared? to take the test, all black and white students all took the same test. So she said as her first goal, that she was going to prepare these three students to take that test and pass it. And then she organized the others into their different grades, 40 students in a room, all different grades. And she organized the study plans for them. And then uh, the, the first month passed and she went down to the county seat to get her paycheck. And while there, she went in to see the local school superintendent. And she presented him with a list of things that she wanted for the school. He was really taken aback. And you can this this is what I mean by she proved what she had inside. 18 years old, she walks into this school superintendent and says, we need windows. We really need a new roof. We need something to, to, to take care of the floor. He realizes that dust kicking up from the floor is going to make the kids sick, and that's going to cost money for the county. And so he gives her some oil to to put on the floor to tamp down the dust. And he agrees to fix the windows Uh, because he realizes that drafts coming through is is another unhealthy thing, and they need light. You know, to have windows in there is is something necessary. And he also volunteers that they have in a warehouse some desks that they're getting rid of that were in a white school, and that if she can get somebody to pick them up and transport them, she could have them too. So she, she, she comes back with a whole list of good things to, to help improve the school. And she uses her sewing skills, which she learned as a young girl, to help the girls make curtains for the windows and, and brighten up the place and make it look decent. Uh, and then she organizes something they never had before, a parent-teacher's organization, And she she gets the parents together and they have festivals uh, like um, song fests around Halloween and Thanksgiving and pageants, uh, little things so that the kids can be learning from it and the parents can be contributing and they can make it a much better school. And it's an amazing year. But I'll tell you something, something bad happened. And I won't tell you what it was. Maybe, you know, if you read that chapter but uh, if anything can go wrong it will and there was an incident that almost cost her, her entire career right there in the middle of her first year teaching but it all, also almost cost one young man his his life and another his freedom she she survived that and it's uh it's a fascinating fascinating thing
0: so during this this period when she's um she's teaching she's trying to establish her Career as a teacher. Um, she also begins to write for kind of some of the local or regional newspapers, so the Kentucky Reporter, the Louisville Defender, the Louisville Leader. Um, how does she, um, or how does she try to balance her love for writing and her, her passion for writing with the kind of, you know, necessity of earning a wage and having to, you know, survive as a black woman in the South during this period?
1: Well, of multiple ways. I mean, one is school was only in session seven months for, for black students down there. The rest of the time they had to work in the field. So she had lots of time to uh, to, to do other things. Also, she would weave her writing in with the students' needs. She found out that there was no history of famous Black Kentuckians and the contribution that Blacks made to their state. And so one of the things she compiled was um, a manuscript that described the the, uh, careers of, of famous Black Kentuckians that the students would never have heard of. And she would get the newspapers to run that as well as use it for text kind of information for the classroom. So that was that was one of the, the uh, ways she, she combined the two. Another interesting thing was um, in how she came to want to be a journalist. She says she doesn't really know what inspired her in the beginning when she was only about 13 years old, because there were no black newspapers in Russellville. And... It, If if blacks were mentioned at all in the newspaper, it was either in a negative way or there might be a little column that it was there wasn't really much opportunity. But for some somehow she wanted to be a journalist and she had a cousin who came to visit and her name, ironically, was almost like the name of a newspaper. Virginia Herald was her name. And Virginia was going on to, I think it was Owensboro, nearby, larger town, and um, helped Alice to get uh, hired by that newspaper, that black newspaper, a Weekly, to write about goings-on in the community. What he had, the, the editor had a page of, this is what's happening in Owensboro. This is what's happening in Russellville. This is what's happening in such a place. And he would have what we call today stringers. And you would write up who got married and who died and what happened. And, and that's how she got started, writing about um, life in Russellville in these little one-line, one-line one pieces.
0: And, um, and she went on from there. So probably had the most or one of the most significant moments in Alice's life is the decision to move to Washington, D.C. in the early 1940s um, to work as a clerk typist. And then, of course, she would go on to work for the Associated Negro Press and become you know, more of an established journalist. Um, how difficult do you think that decision was, uh, both in terms of kind of personal life, um, marriage um, and then also just the decision to move from kind of small town Kentucky really to take that leap to a much more cosmopolitan uh, location
1: well that's the thing about Alice is she, she didn't hesitate whatsoever she she loved to travel she had had an opportunity to travel um, to New York sometime earlier which she describes in the book along with a gentleman who wanted to appear on a a very popular local uh, radio show. And he had never traveled up there and didn't know quite how to get along. So she went to help him out and they went through Chicago and um, Washington DC. And it, it just kind of fed her desire to see more. She was not shy. She was she was full of verve and um, confidence. And so really her decision to leave Kentucky, ah, it seems to have risen in large part from absolute frustration with the system of segregation, which held blacks back. She was uh, such an outstanding teacher. She was recognized even by the white press as an outstanding teacher, something that was very rare. But she found that every time she tried to oh, shake up the status quo, that black people would tell her, don't rock the boat. For example, when the teachers met annually with the su- school superintendent before classes began, she comes into the room and she finds the black teachers on one side of the room, the white teachers on the other. And she says, this isn't right. And so she tries to talk some of the black teachers into going and sitting on the white side of the room and they tell her, don't rock the boat. Oh, another year or so, and she manages to convince some to do it and it turns out that there was no law, there was no rule that, that the races had to be segregated in this meeting. It was just uh, what they habitually did, and nobody said a word. And so that was the end of a black and a white side of the room. She had started feeling this way when she was a little girl, and her mother would take her into bus, Russellville on Saturdays when people gathered to to talk and socialize and buy their provisions, such things that they couldn't raise at home. And. The only public bathroom down there was in the courthouse and it said white women. So if if, if she needed a bathroom, she'd have to go to some friend's house. So Alice, she's, she describes how at 12 years old, she would march right into that white women bathroom. And when she'd come out, her mother would say shake her head and say, one of these days you're going to be beaten to a pulp and there ain't nothing I'm going to be able to do about it. But Alice kept right on. She just was not about to accept the status quo. So finally, uh, about the time the Second World War broke out, uh, after 18 years of teaching, she was fed up she couldn't, she she had tried to organize her community to protest that mail wasn't delivered to black neighborhoods, ostensibly because the roads weren't paved. So she said, well, why don't you pave the roads? And, And different things like that. And some of the people in the meeting would go back to their white employers and say, Alice is trying to turn us against you. And she, because she had a, Public position as a teacher, she almost lost her job. So it, it was uh, being fed up with complacency. She went to take the uh, civil service exam at the local post office. She had to bring her own typewriter. Uh, she, after the second try, she passed the typing exam. She did very well on the written part of it, of course, and. Uh, Got a telegram, I I think it was the day before Thanksgiving, saying, report to work in Washington on Monday. And I'm telling you, James, you know, some of us might have fretted and worried and said, oh, my God, did I do the right thing? This is so scary. You don't find any of that in, in Alice's description. What you find is such a feeling of hope, such a feeling of, wow, I've come this far, I can do this. This is a new beginning, you know, bring it on. she comes to Washington and she goes to the local uh, black YWCA, which she had always been told when you go to a strange city that's the place to go, it's safe. And she starts her job in government and then she realizes that she's at the bottom of the totem pole. She's, uh, she's being paid at entry level as a clerk, and here she has 18 years of teaching behind her. So what does she do? She doesn't get discouraged. She doesn't, she doesn't become complacent. She fights for a promotion. She gets the promotion. She fights for another one. She moves to another agency. She goes to Howard University at night and takes some courses, and and she's doing pretty well. And then the war ends and the government cuts back. The agency is dissolved and she has to find something else to do. And she had been freelancing for the Associated Negro Press, which served some 112 newspapers, something like a, um, a UPI or an AP today, except they didn't use so telegraph or wire because it was too expensive. She would write her stories, send them to Claude Barnett, who founded the uh, association, and then he would distribute it to member newspapers, which numbered, as I said, about 112, and several dozen in West Africa. And some of her stuff was even translated into French in some of those countries. So she she just always kept looking for opportunities, and she had such a can-do attitude, and she was not shy. There is one writer writing about somebody else and sort of suggested that uh, uh, this other person was less shy. Less shy? I mean, you couldn't be. Alice was not shy. You never got anywhere by being shy, but she was not obnoxious or abrasive everybody who knew her will agree she was um, gracious her son put it I think the best he said the one word he would use to describe his mother was persistent if she asked you for something on Monday and you didn't have it she would be back on Tuesday back on Wednesday until she got it and and that was how she handled her approach to, to journalism, to keep looking at walls and barriers and ceilings and saying, well, I don't know why they're there, but I'm going. I'm going through them. And she did.
0: So you mentioned Claude Barnett there of the Associated Negro Press. Um, obviously, the relationship between Dunegan and Barnett hugely important for her establishing a career in journalism. Um, but again, it wasn't often the easiest of relationships um barnett's uh you know had attitudes very much indicative of the kind of sexist nature of the time in terms of journalism and print uh publishing so um how how did that uh relationship work between dunnigan and and barnett and how did dunnigan try and push back against the kind of Um, sexist assumptions that not just Barnett but more broadly uh, black editors and black publishers had about her abilities as a journalist
1: Well I guess one of the best examples is uh, I can think of two right early on that that helped her establish how she was going to deal with Claude Barnett who she describes uh, as a sexist but that's that's, again, Alice is never bitter. She, that's, she, her attitude is that's the way it was. So he was he was not atypical of editors. And she wanted, right off the bat, when he finally gave her a chance to be the Washington bureau chief, one-person bureau, uh, at a fraction of the salary he had uh, offered to two different men who turned down the job. In fact, they were offered salaries, and she was told she could begin on a trial basis at something like a penny, a word. And, and after a week of that, she told him, I can't live, nobody can live on this. And so he upped it a bit, and it wasn't for quite a while that he finally gave her a weekly salary. But she she would just keep keep pursuing and keep pushing that way well she wanted to her first assignment with him as a a full-time reporter was to cover something going on in in the senate it was a discussion about the ouster of mississippi senator bilbo for impropriety so she she didn't know what to do when you come to washington as a reporter and I can identify with this, this when I came right up to college, you really don't know what to do in many circumstances, how to do it. And it's really helpful if somebody takes you under their wing and gives you some guidance. Well, she's standing in line with the public waiting to get in to hear the debate over Senator Bilbo. And she's waiting and she's getting very frustrated because at this rate, she'll never get her story. So she sees some men walking by, and she can see by I the way they're dressed and what they're doing, carrying and whatever, that they're journalists. So she follows them, and they go to a stair, stairwell that's um, protected by two guards and a red velvet rope across it, and she's, she starts to go up and they, they challenge her and say, um, where are you going? And she tells them, I'm a reporter. I'm going where they're going. And they say, well, we don't think you belong up there, but they'll take care of it when you get there. So they let her go up. And she finds out when she gets up to the press gallery that there are no black members and there are no um, black women, especially in her case. Um, she, It's not because there's any rule saying they won't admit blacks it's because they only admit uh, daily press and she says well blacks only have weekly press we don't have any daily press so that rule uh, in itself just uh, discriminates against us so she she keeps agitating they tell she could she can submit an application and see what happens and she works very hard to get the rule changed. But Claude Barnett, when she tells him what she's doing and that she needs a recommendation from him, he says, what makes you, a woman, think that you can be admitted when no man has been admitted to the press gallery? And she says, well, I, I want to try So, you know, it didn't cost anything, but he was supposed to send a letter of recommendation. She succeeds in getting the rules changed. There's a wonderful picture of her her in the book with the uh, Senate uh, senator who was responsible for leading the, the charge to change the rules. And. Oddly enough, she's not the first black reporter admitted. Uh, a male is, Louis Lortier, who worked for the uh, uh, National Negro Newspaper Association, it was called at the time. He's admitted, and she talks to Claude Barnett and finds out he didn't think she would be admitted, and you know he didn't know if a woman should be anyway, so he didn't send a letter of recommendation. So with that... She's admitted and first black woman admitted to those press galleries. And then she decides, well, next step, the White House. There are no black women accredited to the White House press corps. Well, this time you asked about how she dealt with Claude Barnett. She decided not to even ask for his support. She just went straight to Charlie Ross who was President Truman's press secretary. And she brought it up uh, as, you know, are there any black members? And he said, no. And she said, well, why not? And he said, well, just give us your application. (laughs) So she she was rather astounded at that. She submitted her application, and she immediately became a member of the White House Press Corps. Now, shortly after that, it's another good example of her dealing with, uh, with Claude Barnett. Shortly after that, a notice went up on a bulletin board in the uh, press area of the White House that the president was taking a nonpolitical railroad tour, whistle stop tour of Western states it would take about 10 days and that any members of the press who wanted to go along you know, should, should let that be known. So she talked to Charlie Ross and she said she wanted to go and then he told her, well, sure. And she was shocked (laughs) that it was so easy. He said, sure you can. But he said, um, The uh, cost is going to be about a $1,000 per reporter. Well, again, this is news to her. She she wouldn't let on that she didn't know this because she assumed that the White House paid for reporters to accompany the president, which isn't the case. Each um, news outlet that sends a, a reporter is responsible for his or her expenses. So she goes to Claude Barnett and she tells him she has this wonderful opportunity to cover this Western tour that the president is taking. And he says, Women don't make trips like that. Well, you can imagine she's totally disgusted. And she said, Well, I have this opportunity and I want to do it. I think it's important for our readership to see what President Truman is doing. And she she gives him all the reasons. And he says um, something like, well, how important is this trip to you? And she says, well, it's it's very important. And he says, well, it's not that important to me or my membership. So if you want to go, you have to pay for it yourself. Well... Alice had $300 in the bank, but she got some people to um, intercede. And Claude Barnett finally said, well, I'll I'll ask our three largest newspapers if they'll contribute. So he asked the Chicago Defender, I think it was the Pittsburgh Courier, the Atlanta Daily World, Uh, The Atlanta paper wasn't interested at all. They didn't even have a correspondent in Washington. Uh, And the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender decided, yeah, this really was a good trip to to cover the president. So they sent their own reporters, two men. And Alice still didn't have any way to pay for it. So she went to uh, the people, her sorority, uh, she had a friend at the NAACP, and he interceded at his bank and helped her get a loan. So with the loan, with her $300, she had, you know, close to the 1000 that Charlie Ross had predicted it would cost. And so she decided to pay for it herself. And she never let on to anybody that she did because she, as she told her son later in a letter, she figured they would ridicule her for that. She, she went on her own, and she proved Claude Barnett wrong because she was on the front page of almost every one of those newspapers for the the uh, two weeks that she was away, and she got some very good stories. Uh, in fact, when she she first sent in a story, another Claude Barnett uh, attitude problem. She, again, without anybody telling her what to do, how to do it, she sent in a story and Claude Barnett said, there's no black angle here. There were no black people in these towns that uh, President Truman was stopping in. And you didn't talk about civil rights in those days if you were a politician. So Claude Barnett said there's no black angle. Well, Alice is thinking she can't let that stop her. So Eddie Foliard, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Washington Post, saw her gathering up all those mimeographed materials that the press car had on the, the president's uh, train. And he said, no, 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 no. Don't bother with that. He said, because by the time your copy comes out in, in a weekly paper, uh, that's all news. People will have Heard the president's speech on the radio or read about it in the daily papers. He said, what you want to do is get off the train, mingle with the people, get local color, get their reaction to the president, see how they feel about him. So with that help, she started to do that. And then she devised a very clever way of getting around Claude Barnett's uh, feelings about there being no black angle. She'd write something like, there were no Negroes in the crowd of... 2,500 people who gathered at the railroad station in such and such a city to hear President Truman talk about such and such. And that was the black angle. There were no blacks there. And then she'd go on and report her story. And then she had a real break. She didn't get a break from the two male reporters from the Chicago Defender or the Pittsburgh Courier. They kept to themselves. They didn't help her at all. She, so one night, the president's train stopped where it uh, had no uh, schedule to stop. It was a college town, Missoula, Montana. And they stopped because there were several hundred college students along the tracks hoping to get a glimpse of the president. And around midnight, the train stopped bunch of reporters, those who were awake, Alice among them, jumped off the train and gathered around that platform at the rear of the last car, and President Truman came out in his pajamas and robe and talked to the students for about 10 minutes. And then he took some questions, and as I said, you know, politicians talked about civil rights, In those days, they didn't bring it up, but students will bring up just about anything, and they did. One student yelled out, Mr. President, what can you say about civil rights? And President Truman shot back, I can say that civil rights is as old as the Constitution of the United States and as new as the Democratic Party platform, and then he insinuated it would also be in the platform in uh, in the next election, and so Alice got an exclusive because the other um, black press reporters hadn't bothered to get off the train, and so they missed the story. And the headline that ran in dozens of black newspapers was "President Defends Civil Rights in Pajamas at Midnight," and and Alice then was really on her way. She had proved her mettle and she had proven that Claude Barnett was very, very wrong.
0: So um, after the kind of whistle-stop tour with Truman, which really kind of makes Alice's early early career, gives her that advantage, um, she goes on to write quite a lot about um, criminal justice, uh, particularly during the early 1950s. Um, how does her writing become more, or would you say that it becomes more activist or more political in its orientation, in particular as she moves towards these kind of profiles or um, coverage of criminal justice, of um, criminal cases during that period?
1: Yes, the black press had a very important role to play at that time. In, in that, as, as I mentioned, the, the white press nationally wasn't just Kentucky ignored news of interest to the black community unless it was a crime. So, if if um, somebody, if a black man was accused of rape, oh, that would be big big story in the white press, the mainstream press. And if there was any injustice and in any Effort to give the man a fair trial and to see that justice was done that did not appear. So Alice's reporting did focus on some of the um, some of the instances of extreme racial injustice, and she would write about it, which was necessary to expose it and bring pressure, and so but it, it wasn't it wasn't so much being an advocate as exposing things that nobody else was paying any attention to injustices and if that made her an advocate well so be it she was comfortable with that
0: um even as she kind of progressed as a journalist um she was still often uh you know scraping by uh living close to the poverty line um a lot of that seems to be due to kind of still being on a quite a low rate in terms of freelance um so even as she kind of progressed as a journalist it seems that uh, at least for a lot of her career uh, she wasn't as well compensated financially for that um to what extent it, would you say that's kind of Uh, the result of her race, um, the result of her kind of upbringing, of her class background, of her gender, uh, or a mix of these different factors?
1: Well, part of it is because the black press didn't have much money. No one who worked for the black press made as good a living as people who worked for the white press, and journalists' salaries aren't that great uh, even today. Um except in you know, big TV stars and things like that. But the print press didn't pay very much and the black print press paid even less. But also um there was Claude Barnett's um position. I mean, it wasn't just uh, sexism, but he he had difficulty collecting dues from his member newspapers. And the reason for that, is they were all struggling. And the last bill you'd pay would be your membership dues, you know, after you paid for your electricity and your heat and stuff like that. So it was a struggle. And she did some freelance magazine writing, some other freelance writing. There was one point when she was in such desperate straits that she actually considered helping a bootlegger just to earn a little more money. But uh, while she was mulling that over, uh, there was a police crackdown on bootlegging in Washington, and she was so glad that she had not done that. But it was extremely difficult. She would go down to a pawn shop on Fridays with her only possession of any value, her watch, and she would pawn it for about five dollars, so that she could eat over the weekend, until the Associated Negro Press sent her her paycheck on Mondays. And she had asked them to try and get it to her on Fridays, but they they never did. So she would find almost every weekend that she was in desperate straits. Thank God for the embassy parties in Washington. She did cover events at the embassies the journalists, and uh, you, you ate quite well at
0: those. <laughs> <laughs> um, so towards the uh, end of the 50s and start of the 1960s, um, Dunagan's focus starts to shift towards politics. Um, so how does she make that decision? I mean, is her interest in politics, is that something that had been growing over a period of time? Um, What were the factors behind her kind of looking to shift careers again? So she had originally gone from teaching journalism and then now during the early 60s, she makes that kind of shift into the the third part of her career during the 60s with this kind of uh, more political.
1: Well, there were several factors. I mean, just going back to growing up her father was active in local politics in, in their county and had helped her get some teaching positions because of his connection to politicians so she was well aware that being connected could be very helpful in making a living and then she well she she went through a terrible time uh, in the Eisenhower administration, she had been very welcome in the Truman administration. He was—he was—he was, uh, he was, he was just—he was very welcoming to her. And at his press conferences and on the train trip and and all. And and then Eisenhower came in. And President Eisenhower was. Not interested in civil rights questions. He wasn't interested in talking about civil rights. He felt uncomfortable, apparently, and his staff apparently didn't brief him. And so he would have weekly news conferences, and Alice attended faithfully every news conference. And at first, he called on her um, quite a bit. And she always asked a question about civil rights. What? What else? This was for her readership. That's what they were interested in. And he would get annoyed. And then at one point, he had one of his aides talk to her at an embassy party and suggest that she submit her question in advance, and that way the boss would be prepared to answer it. Well, at first she thought, "Oh, fine." And, but then when they told him, "Well, don't ask, don't ask that question." Um, she realized she had been duped. She was the only reporter that they were expecting to ask the question in advance. So she decided she wouldn't abide by that request, but it didn't make any difference because by then president Eisenhower had decided on his own way of dealing with Alice Dunnigan, which was to completely ignore her, to look right past her, never take a question from her, uh, again for years uh, to the to the point where one white reporter said to her after a news conference do you realize how many times you stood you know how you stand mr president and you hope to be called on and she said no i wasn't counting he said 17 times well that went on and then another black female reporter came from the chicago defender and eisenhower took her questions for a while but Her questions were also on civil rights. And so he stopped uh, calling on her, too, and she stopped going. Alice kept right on going and kept right on trying. So I think she was uh, very fed up, probably, with the Republican Party after eight years of Eisenhower. And uh, she she volunteered to work on the Kennedy-Johnson campaign and went back to Kentucky making speeches for the uh, candidates and she was very impressed with Vice President uh, Johnson uh, in part because of his southern background and uh, she took more time to learn what he was all about than many other people did some Many people wrote him off as eh, just another Southerner who's being brought in for political uh, leverage in this election. But she thought he was sincere, and he had been uh, chairman of the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity, and he, he had uh, expressed some positions that indicated that he was very sincere and serious about civil rights. And so after Kennedy and Johnson won uh, Alice, for the first time in her life, had the opportunity to make a decent wage. I mean, she she never made, oh, it's in the book, I forget now, was it $60 a month or something like that, it was the most she ever made from the Associated Negro Press. She came into the government on a political appointment as a GS-13, which meant... Uh, I don't know what they were paid at that time. It was, you know, I think at least $10,000. She could finally live a decent life. And she grabbed the chance. And many other journalists will give up their careers and become press spokesmen or something else in an administration because the pay in the government was much better. And that's what she did. She worked as a Education counselor to the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity, which later became the EEOC federal agency. And there was later set up under President Johnson a presidential committee on youth, and she became counsel to them too. Then um, Richard Nixon was elected. Later on, in what was that, nineteen, yeah, seventy. <laughs> anyway, Richard Nixon was elected, and Republicans were eager to get rid of um, people who were there from the Democratic administration. And she decided it was a good time to
0: retire. Okay, so um, we're running a little bit um, short on time, but uh, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your editing process. Um, so first of all, the original text uh, you mentioned it earlier, you know, over 670 pages long, and you've got it down to a pretty tight 200, and then obviously you've added the notes on top. Um, so firstly, uh, so our listeners would just be interested to hear more about um, how you went about the process of cutting the book down, and um, which sections you decided to cut. Uh, if maybe there were sections that you didn't want to cut but you, they were necessary. To take out?
1: Well one reviewer, um, and all the reviewers praised the book, I was very happy about that, one reviewer made a funny comment that I had edited it with a machete, (laughs) but that that was all right because I left in all the exciting parts, which is exactly right. The original book is in three parts She discussed in in a lengthy part three her years working in the federal government. And that was pretty much been there, done that to me. I think almost anybody who had worked in the federal government, particularly women, particularly minorities, would have similar stories that was not as trailblazing or stunning as the earlier parts of the book, I wanted people to read her earlier parts of the book, which showed how this woman with such a modest education, such modest background, had conquered a world that was completely new to her. And to get people to read that meant making a book that was very manageable and exciting from beginning to end. And so I lobbed off part three. I mentioned in the epilogue that what what she did for the government and that her son um, in her later life was living near her in Washington and, uh, and would accompany her to uh, galas and White House receptions and things like that. So so that's how I approached it. And as far as the earlier parts of the book, I don't think I missed anything vital. But a, a scholar, a person really interested in looking into the workings uh, of politics and education and black life at that time won't do wrong if they go back and go to a research library and read the original. But I kept her own words and I shortened a bit about her feelings when she was a little kid. I mean, the the loneliness of this little girl. I I think we get it. You know, nobody to play with and and you know i i i tried to be very sensitive to her because i said what would i want someone to do with my work if i were in the same position what would alice find what would alice think was very important and her her family thought this was okay this was good so i'm i'm very pleased and i'm very pleased that it's her voice and that somebody could have taken her book and wrote about her. They could have written a biography. But she had gone to all that trouble to write painstakingly about what was going on in that time. And because she self-published, and because of the, the era she did it in, the book came out in 19, well, her original book. Um, shortly after she retired in the 70s. And so people didn't read it much. It got it got some good reviews, and she had some speaking opportunities, and she'd go around the country talking about the book and doing book signings, but nowhere near what she deserved. And I felt it would be terribly unfair to take her work and – redo it into my work, a biography of her. I said, no, she did all the work. She gets the credit. This is the autobiography of Alice Dunigan.
0: Um I also wanted to ask you about um, the kind of contextual research that you did for the book. Um, you make some great use of of collections. Obviously, uh, Dunigan's papers are at the Moorland Spingard um, at Howard in Washington, D.C., uh, you also have got some stuff from Claude Barnett's papers um, up in Chicago. How much um, kind of how valuable was that in terms of the extra contacts you were able to get about Alice's life through those papers, through her own papers, then also through the papers of people such as Claude Barnett?
1: It was very valuable. You know, some things had been written about Alice and... I found out that, like some essays, you know, sections of other books, I found out that they were they were replete with errors, even pieces that were written by people who should know better, uh, academics mm-hmm. with research backgrounds. And the way you find out what the real truth is is to go to um, original, first-hand materials. Don't rely on somebody else's interpretation. And I, I found that in the letters of Claude Barnett, I mean, there it was, spelled right out, his offering the job of Washington Bureau Chief uh, to a succession of men and discussing salary with them and several, you know, whatever it was, several hundred a month or whatever. And then turning around and telling Alice it would be, um, I think it was a penny a word, half a cent a word or a penny a word, something like that, which was absolutely ridiculous. And she'd knock herself out trying to make uh, a living on that. Uh, so, And Marlon Spingarn uh, had her own letters. She, they, there was one beautiful letter to her son, which described how important it was to her to go on that whistle-stop tour with President Truman and how, because she had to take a loan and spend her own money that she, and that she didn't want anybody to know because they would ridicule her, she wasn't able to send him, a high school student at the time, um, an allowance, but that she would make it up to him. He lived with her parents and because her husband, Charles Dunegan for reasons described in the book. And she's again, very kind about that and blames more on the system than on Donegan himself. He was never inclined or able to support her and their baby. And and fortunately, Alice's parents took care of little Bobby Um, and he did go to college and joined the Marines and he became a successful professional and, um, yeah. yeah so that letter was in Molin Spin and uh maybe there were also people around who knew her that I could talk to some journalists like my husband he knew he, and he wrote the new forward to the book based on uh, his knowledge of her and how you know with no office no secretary uh, she managed and he was sent to Washington to set up an office for Johnson Publications and Had a secretary and a staff of uh, five to seven, including full-time photographer, writers for Jet, writers for Ebony, an office manager. uh, John H. Johnson, who'd had this great success with Ebony magazine and had started in 1951, Jet Magazine, which he intended to be the Bible for blacks about what was going on in the black community, a a news magazine, pocket size. He was determined to have a first class operation and he wasn't even going to settle for an office in black section of Washington. Blacks couldn't get any space in downtown Washington at the time. But uh, he insisted and They managed, and they got right down there on uh, Constitution Avenue first and then moving up to a block, within a block of the White House. And my husband gives Alice credit. What she did, and I mean headlines in Black newspapers across the country every week, they say that she did more to bring to the Black community at that time, the 40s and early 50s, to bring to them news of what was going on, the outrages in the Congress. Remember, blacks were beginning to get voting blocks in major cities at that time, in Baltimore and in Chicago and New York. And Alice would be sitting there in the gallery, uh, maybe the only black reporter at the time, and have to listen to congressmen using racial epithets doesn't happen anymore but that's the way they acted back then and she would report it it would be in the headlines let people know this is what the congressman is doing and vote accordingly and so all, all of the newspaper clippings um, things that aren't available online not everything that was in the black press at the time is available on uh, proquest or some other Uh, databases, but in Alice's papers at Moreland Spingarn were quite a few clippings of her articles.
0: That's great, thank you. Um, We're pretty much out of time now, Carol, Um, so I'll just finish up with with my usual final question, uh, which is, you know, uh, if any of our listeners are interested to find out more about Alice Dunnegan, or um, if they can find out more about your own writing or your own work, um, where would be the best places for them to go?
1: Well, for Alice Dunnegan, if you just want a smidgen, the best piece that was ever written about her and is accurate was written by a man named Michael Morrow. And it's just, it's an essay. It was in a local newspaper in Russellville, and He remembered as a child hearing his grandmother say, Alice is coming to town. Alice is coming to town. And and then as he grew up, he realized that was Alice Dunnigan. And then when her book came out, he read it. And then later on, he came to Washington, did research at Howard University, and met with her family and wrote an accurate, beautiful essay that summarizes Alice's life. And that's available on the Internet. Michael Morrow is his name. Other than that, I would read Alone atop the Hill, the edited version of uh, the autobiography of Alice Dunnigan, which I would hope would be available through a library or uh, Amazon or University of Georgia Press. I mean, it is a fascinating story, and I'm very happy that a, a committee of the American Library Association that focuses on books appropriate for young readers. Uh I mean Amelia is it the Amelia Bloomer Project? I'm trying to remember exactly, but they chose this book as appropriate for young women twelve to eighteen years of age. I would love to see a book for children, perhaps an illustrated book for children about Alice Dunigan, because there are not many books for young children about women in the civil rights movement. And Alice is just somebody that everybody should know about.
0: That's great. Thanks very much for your time today.
1: My pleasure. I could go on all day. <laughs> I love Alice Donegan, as you you may have guessed. She is a real hero, and I I just could talk about her all day, and I appreciate the opportunity, James.
0: You've been listening to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. Support for the network is generously provided by Amherst College Press. For more information, go to NewBooksnetwork.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or follow on Facebook and Twitter.